Hi, and welcome to Healthy Canadians, your space for nuanced conversations and expert insights on the health topics that matter to all of us living in Canada. I'm your host, Megan Bayan. Today on the podcast, we have Adrian Betts, Executive Director of the AIDS Committee of Durham Region, and Claudette Cardinal, Indigenous Community Researcher at the BC Centre for Excellence in HIV-AIDS, to talk about undetectable equals untransmittable, or you equals you. We'll jump into that in a moment, but first, a quick word from us. Healthy Canadians is brought to you by Health Canada and the Public Health Agency of Canada. We aim to give you information and perspectives about the health topics that matter to all of us living in Canada. What we discuss won't always reflect the official positions or policies of the Government of Canada, but that's okay. These are conversations, not news releases. Okay, let's talk about you equals you. Hello, Adrian and Claudette. Welcome, and thank you so much for joining me today on Healthy Canadians. Adrian, why don't you start and tell me a little bit about yourself and what you do? Well, I'm Adrian Betts. I'm the executive director at the AIDS Committee of Durham Region, which is a local AIDS service organization um, outside of Toronto, in the, um, not just east of Toronto. Uh, and we also run a provincial-wide um, a positive youth program called Hype HIV Youth Career Engagement. Uh, and I've been living with HIV a long, long time. I've been working in the sector since late 99. So I'm kind of a, what do you call it? A dinosaur? <laughs> awesome. Thank you. And Claudette, tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, my name is Pokuni. I'm from the Musqua clan, uh, Treaty 6 territory originally. And I am signing in here today on the Squamish, Tooth, and Musqueam peoples. I have been living with HIV come December 18th. Well, actually, December 12th is when the lab knew that I was HIV positive. It took them six days to relay that message, to find me, to bring me back to the office, to give me the diagnosis. And yeah, so it's almost like 29 years starting in December, my 29th year with HIV. I work at the BC Center for Excellence in HIV AIDS as the Indigenous Community Research Person. However, the titles, the titles we keep on morphing. It's like Peer Research Associate, Community Research Associate. I just put Indigenous there because that's who I am. I've been working at the Center for, oh my goodness, I started as the CI program, Community Investigator Program for CANOC. Completed my term two years, two seven, two. 17 to 19 and I've been employed there as a peer research associate and last year's recipient of the community-based research award twice recipient once with Thrive the team last year um, and the Chibos 33 peer RAs in 2019 and that's me and I just busy busy and I got grants under my name and all kinds of things can I just reflect on something you, you, you said that it, it is weird when you realize you've been HP positive longer than you've been HP negative. Um, it's a strange adjustment to make in your head that, that uh, your, your disease, which has become an identity in many ways, the way that other diseases are not an identity. HIV, you are HP positive where you have cancer. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's fascinating uh, to be this age and to survive and, and uh, to think back what life was like before HIV. It's hard to remember. Sorry, I'm going off on a tangent. You're ready. 
this is why we wanted you both on the podcast because not just because of your expertise and your work, but also because of your stories and your life. So we're going to dig into that. Um, we are talking today specifically about you equals you. So you equals you, for those who don't know, means undetectable equals untransmittable. Let's start with the basics. Adrian, maybe do you want to start and explain what you equals you is? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it, it's really an easy thing to understand. If you're HIV positive and you go on antiretroviral therapy um, and you take your, your medication regularly, your viral load will become undetectable. I mean, it's at a level so low in your body that it's, it's become undetectable. And what they found through uh, uh, quite extensive research um, is that if you are, in fact, undetectable, it is impossible for you to sexually transmit the virus to a partner, meaning undetectable equals untransmittable. Therefore, if I'm undetectable, I can't give the virus to anybody. So that's the simplest way of putting it in that ultimately that's biologically what it does. But what it also does is dismantle stigma and give people with HIV an incredible sense of comfort that they've never had before. Um, I don't know a single person with HIV who ever, whose biggest anxiety is not infecting somebody else. So um, it's, uh, it was used as a game changer in many ways, but ultimately it's about not being able to transmit the virus. Excellent, thank you. That is a great explanation. What is happening in the body when you're taking antiretroviral therapy? The advent of AR, ARVs is what saved my life. I was living with AIDS at the time when ARVs came along and saved my life. Um, and so um, ARVs do many, many things. The different meds do, do block different parts of the life cycle of the HIV virus, meaning you'll have uh, some drugs that will prevent it from replicating, some drugs that will prevent it from entering a healthy cell, someone drugs preventing it from leaving another cell, other drugs preventing it from mutating into a different strain of HIV. And so the combination of all these therapies um, is what makes up antiretroviral therapy, a combined therapy effective, in that you stop it from replicating, uh, from uh, leaving and entering healthy cells, from latching onto cells in the first place, and to mutating. Then the your body will naturally process the disease out of your body to the point where you reach undetectable levels. Now, it still sits in reservoirs in, in your body, which, which the medication can't reach, but ultimately um, it produces such a profound effect on your the ma majority of your body that, that you, you, uh, you become relatively well um, for a better service. It was weird being so sick and then being healthy so quickly too, it was alarming how quickly that change happened. But they were against, literally, literally saved lives. Um, like I was on my way out, I've been told to get my affairs in order, but with this treatment saved my life. My friend, Larry, not so lucky. If he'd just well, hung on another month or two, be a different story. Wow. So on an individual level, is that like a pretty typical experience once you start taking these therapies and they do start working for you? Is that a typical experience of an individual of feeling like w very well pretty quickly? 
there's, there's always an adjustment to new medication, right, Claudette? I mean, they, they put you on a new medication and they say, oh, side effects are minimal. Well, everybody's different. Pharmacy in general is, is always a bit of a juggle. Um, but in terms of the efficacy of the drugs, ARTs are more and more efficacious every year. Um, and they're easier to take by the majority of people every year. I think with the most fascinating statistic you can say to somebody today is that if you are a young person infected with HIV and you're, you're diagnosed early and you're put on antiretroviral therapy, that your life expectancy is now longer than the average Canadian. You know why? Because we see our doctors every six months or at least once a year. Right? Whereas many Canadians don't see their doctors. They only go when it's super urgent. By then it's often too late. Whereas we're screened every six months for everything. And so cancers are caught early. So um, uh, other illnesses are caught early. Um, and so the life expectancy of any person newly affected is like longer than that of the average day. That's so cool. And AR, AR is dumb. We'll call it for all we need two cents here. For me, I'm more on the natural holistic end, and it's like I have enough toxicity in my pill regimen as it is because the fact that you and I are different weight and size, sex, all that, nationality, and the pill dosage that you're on is basically the same dosage as for women. So there's, I think, new studies that are coming out for about the different dosage for individuals. Like, say, I'm 5'4", and I'm taking a full-on strength as same individual that's six something but i need about more naturalistic i've like stopped all the drugs going through my body harming my body and being more conscious of what's going on in my body so that i'm more like no i do those three things that are how i consume cannabis and then everything else is like uh now that's uh, i think in 2016 in the example i had thinning of the bones and then that, that's how I need about researching and doing the different treatment and changing okay from stribal genvoya genvoya to tarvi now right so I'm like okay and I might just stop right now and maybe I want the shot but then that's like on in the butt and I used to have to get iron shots because my ferritin was so low like I was like at two and I had to get freaking IV at the hospital treatment so this brown sugar bag I called it I was sugaring up because my levels were so low. So you equals you is kind of like a motivator to stay maybe on top of your ART, but also it has an impact potentially for someone on their overall health as well. And I didn't know about that in the beginning. I thought I knew in the beginning, as soon as I took my medication, that was told to me that you, it's fine as long as you stay on your medication. I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit more about the research, the specific research for U equals U and how exactly, because I know there's a lot of research, <laughs> a long history of well, research. There's the two big studies that, that uh, one's the partner study and one is, uh, oh my God, and it's basically like, OTHN zero five two. It's a number. And, and uh, I mean, these, these studies were, were uh, studies where they had Couples, two discordant couples, so male and female couples primarily, but there were also a second study with with uh, gay men, uh, and they monitored these couples who were on intravenous therapy and undetectable versus uh, those who were in the control study who were not undetectable and so forth, and it became so obvious so re so quickly 
So there was almost zero transference of HIV or transmittance of HIV between partners when there had been uh, adherence to the medication and other physical levels were maintained. Um, but they ended up closing the study early and putting everyone on ARTs so they could actually prevent the spread of HIV. The studies literally, they were there for a while. I mean, even think back to the Swiss statement going back several years before um, that there was a comment made at the AIDS conference in, in Switzerland um, about, you know, they didn't believe this, that what you want to take believe just with the virus. Shut down immediately by many, many people. But then here we are many years later, the partner study and the 052 study come along and they prove it without a doubt that ultimately you can't transmit the virus if you're undetectable. Now, the irony is no one wanted to believe it. No one in the medical profession or even the research uh, uh, parts of the world wanted to believe the science. And it, uh, uh, because uh, people are more comfortable looking at, at people like Fodak and I as disease vectors than as people. Um, that we are uh, dirty, we've somehow deserved what we've given ourselves, and that uh, we are more of a cautionary tale than someone who deserves to be uh, treated with respect and dignity. And, and so it was the PHA sector itself, like PHAs, people living with HIV, who got this whole movement going, pushing the, the, the research, sorry, uh, about you, was you, and making people listen. I remember being, I mean, I'm an executive director of an AIDS organization. I was aware of this study. And I was at a meeting of all the ETs in Ontario where the Gain and uh, Sexual Health uh, Alliance wanted to launch a new campaign and also include you was you as part of their messaging. And there was an adamant refusal from the people in the room say, oh, we can't, we can't endorse that. It's not proven yet. And I'm like, I'm sitting there going, this is crazy. It's a fact, but I just swear on this, on this thing because I might. Um, uh, it made me incensed. I was, I was furious because uh, they're sitting here, these HIV negative people are sitting here telling me, you know, um, that, that I don't know what I'm talking about, that I don't understand this. But they'll endorse condoms, which are 90, 95% efficacious. They'll endorse PrEP, which is 98% efficacious. But this one is like 99.99999, and they won't endorse it. Well, tell me that's not stigma related, please. And so it literally took people like Bruce Rick and, and from New York, uh, from the, uh, oh my God, the campaign was it called, help me out, um, to, to move this conversation forward. And, and organizations like mine, we signed on to it immediately. Uh, and the AIDS community of Ottawa, you know, signed on right away. Uh, recognizing this was a huge step forward against the uh, stigma that people with HIV face every day. Now, you could bounce HIV stigma with things like sexism, uh, anti-Indigenous or anti-Black racism, um, and, and poverty, and you know, things really start to compound for people and making it difficult to get healthy in any way. Accessing medication, accessing food, accessing, um, you know, really being under medical services. Uh, it, it's harder with the more barriers put in place. And this was a barrier that they could remove, and they chose not to until they were forced to by people like us, who once again step forward. And let's remember that JIPA and MIPA, the greater involvement and meaningful engagement of people living with HIV, which is what our sector is supposedly built upon, that was about PHA storming the stage at the Montreal AIDS conference, uh, demanding to be part of the, of the conversation. And to this day, we must be vigilant as people living with HIV 
to to be prepared to step into that space and demand to be heard. And it was you was one of those situations where we had to demand that this research be taken seriously and that not be dismissed by people who just didn't want to uh, change their point of view about PHAs as disease vectors and as sort of people. Harsh words, that's how I feel. Thank you. Thank you, Adrian. Sorry for the rant. No, it wasn't a rant. It was a great and passionate explanation. Thank you. And this is, you know, I think highlights one of the reasons why we wanted to have this conversation today, because I think if you are not as familiar with HIV issues or the concept of U equals U, I think there's a lot of people that probably think like this has nothing to do with me. Um, and we're here to say awareness is important, right? Like that's why mm -hmm. this is an issue for everyone to care about. So thank you for sharing that and for sharing um, your story. I want to pick up on the the stigma part of this because, okay, research was amazing. Um, it wouldn't have happened probably without the grassroots support and advocacy of some really key groups. Um, so stigma really affected um, the research. How has it changed now? Maybe I'll throw it to Claudette first. Stigma now, since U equals U, what impact has that had on stigma? I know that's a big question. Okay, the individual level, as an, as an Indigenous person, the stigma still is there. It, it's great that these campaigns are available, but the, the one thing is you're missing, like the people that are in rural areas and different places, the newly diagnosed that are entering into this new lifelong commitment of taking medications, uh, it's just the impact is uh, for me as a, as an individual and an indigenous person. The stigma is every day. Like I spoke at CAR and in April about I was on the panel for stigma and discrimination, and it's very apparent that when I it's every day I walk out and I go out that door and I even go shop at my local store. It's like Maybe my advice to them is like, can you put up a, like a local list of grocery shoppers that come through your door? It's like, we need a, a, ver a visual of our, our mugs there to show that we're legit shoppers and we don't need to be followed. I just call them the Mr. Obvious and like, I, I get run around by this person every time. It doesn't matter which store I go to or whatever. That's the stigma that is following me every time I go anywhere. For you personally, though, I, I fully understand what you're saying about Indigenous racism and, and the stigma of, of being Indigenous in the country. I get it. Um, but the question I think I would be, I'd like to most hear your answer to is, did finding out that you could not transmit the virus sexually anymore, did that reduce your own personal stigma around HIV in any way? Yes, and that was in the early days as well with doctors that weren't I had some sexual problems and then saying them to a, 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 a white doctor and then going, well, I know if I take my medication. So there's that self-awareness in the beginning before you equals you came around that I'm like, okay, well, as long as I'm on my medication and I'm practicing safe sex, that kind of thing and all of that's good. I know I'm not going to pass it to anyone. It's only if you're not on your medication, your viral load off the rooftop and that kind of thing, then there's that that law that comes in about the criminalization, right? So it's like, no. So as long as you're adhering and all that, so it wasn't, it wasn't a big, like, 
a flaw. I was like, that's awesome that it is, it exists now. It's, it's got meaning to it about the, the movement about you equals you, right? It was like, I've always maintained that once I heard from the doctors in the beginning that, you know, you take your medications, you'll be fine. Uh, yeah. Um, I'm a gay man and, and uh, I'm single. And so since, you know, I, I'm out there dating, hopeful that I'll meet somebody that actually makes me you know, stick around. But um, um, it's changed how I can interact with potential partners, sexual partners, uh, in that um, that conversation around disclosure um, becomes a little easier because with a little education, you can explain to the person, you're at no risk here, you know? I mean, we could use condom, we can whatever you want to do, and we'll follow the rules, but you set this consent, this consent, this consent. But ultimately, um, uh, when people understand that I can't transmit the virus, it gives them a much greater sense of comfort. Um, and so when you don't perceive yourself as a disease vector, that did make a change for me, absolutely. Uh, personally, it made me feel more confident. Um, I had a boyfriend at the time, and he was negative, and I felt really happy that that one niggling worry at the back of my mind, not how, no matter how minuscule it was, like uh, it was out off the table because I've been non-detectable for years now. And that it's very little chance um, that I would ever infect. And so that, that was a wonderful thing. I do think though, um, I think people in our community are aware of it, PHAs. Do I think the rest of the world is? No, I don't. And do I think the medical community is aware of it? No, I don't. The number of people I know have had to explain to their doctors what you was you is about is ridiculous. And that clinically speaking, you know, they don't operate that way. You don't, you don't walk into a clinic and hear most clinicians, doctors, nurses, uh, nurse practitioners talking about you plus you in that way, in a, in a terminology that is about healthy sexuality and, you know, healthy relationships. Um, instead, they go, they will always cite that 0. 0.00001 chance of infection, right? Um, because they don't believe in the scientific absolute, right? But there's been not, there's not been a single recorded case of HIV transmittal from, from, from someone who's undetectable in any of those studies to their, uh, to their, to their lover without an explanation, meaning the person stopped taking their meds for a period of time or the person slept with someone else, right? Um, no one else in that study converted. And that's been true to this day. And the people that we engage with, we're not affecting them. They're not getting sick. Um, and yet still clinicians and policymakers don't see that. I mean, Claudette mentioned criminalization. Canada rules the world in number of prosecutions of criminal non-disclosure. And in Canada, the, the non-disclosure of HV status is considered grievous sexual assault, which equates it to rape, right? Which gives you a, a, a sex offender registry level crime where you can go to prison for decades um, for not disclosing your status. And, and the rules around it are, you must be undetectable and use a condom before you don't have to disclose. Well, disclosure is a tricky thing. What if you're in a situation where in, in a, a relationship where there's a power imbalance, like an abusive partner? Um, you can't always disclose without fear of, of physical harm. Um, and so there are many things that don't come into play. But if they would just look at the fact that the science indicates that this person could not infect that partner, this whole thing about criminalization needs to go away. 
I mean, and, and again, it comes down to believing the science. And it's amazing to me how many people don't and how it's on, on our shoulders as people living with the disease to educate everybody. Well, when we were talking, when we first started talking about stigma, I was thinking, wow, like this must have a huge impact on access to care in terms of like getting care, receiving care. But what I'm hearing is that there's still a lot more work to do that in a healthcare setting, even more awareness needs to be brought to U equals U. And um, we've done a lot of work, but stigma is still pervasive. It's it's hard. I mean, I'm an activist. I've been an activist my entire life. Um, I, I've been working in this sector since almost well, 35 years. Um, and I was, I had a health condition that was undiagnosed. And I didn't know what was wrong. I was sent from oncologist to, to one doctor after another. I ended up going to, uh, to, uh, um, to see a dermatologist. And I walked into the office. I was asked to disrobe. So I was naked waiting for the doctor to arrive. He obviously read my, my file, but then he came in. He was wearing double mask, double gloves, Double, double mask, face shield, and he looked terrified. He stood. This is before COVID. Only woke up. He stood across the room from me, and he took one of those big wooden Q-tips, and he touched me with it, like, 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 just like, that, you know. And 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 then he said, "I'm sorry, we can't. I I can't help you. We I, I don't I don't I don't treat people like you." Right. So in that moment, am I an activist? No, I'm an executive director. No, I'm a naked gay man living with HIV uh, who's terrified that he's got yet another ailment that may kill him, but no one can diagnose it. And this person has just diminished me into nothing. Um, and it wasn't until I was getting dressed that I found my agency where I, just, I thought I got angry, right? And, and I ended up screaming my head off in his waiting room in front of his patients. Uh, and then I went back to my office and I called the College of Physicians and Surgeons and I reported him. And I insisted that they send my team from the AIDS Committee of Generation in there to educate him and his staff on HIV 101, including you, we'll see you. Uh, and and um, because this was a medical doctor who had no clue about HIV, period, let alone you, we'll see you. So HIV stigma is alive and well in Canada, trust me. And when you compound it with things like racism and um, misogyny and and um, well, all the other isms that put, put barriers in place. I mean, it's not just the stigma there, but this whole access piece you mentioned uh, about access to care. Like, it's hard to be undetectable if you're not taking your medication regularly. If you don't have access to healthcare professionals or to medication equitably, well, then maybe you don't do that. If you're a woman living in poverty, let's say you're an indigenous woman in, in, living in, in Toronto, uh, you have three kids and you work two jobs and, you know, who comes first? The rent comes first, food comes first, the kids come first. And that means you don't have the money to pay your deductible for your medication. And guess what? You're not getting your medication that month. Or people do what they often do, which is take it every other day or take it, you know, three days a week and then four days off. Like, they make the pills last. And the problem is what that does is lead up build, build um, resistance to medication that people are bad. Um, it makes medications ineffective for people long-term. And then also it, it dilutes the effects of the medication, meaning they won't get undetectable. So this, getting undetectable is a challenge because of multiple stigmas that make the health system in 
Canada difficult to navigate, particularly for newcomers, for anyone who doesn't speak English uh, or French, for indigenous people astronomically, for black people astronomically. You know, I, I'm, I sit here in my you know, 50-something-year-old male white privilege, standard privilege. You know, I know the system. I sat on the advisory council of the Minister of Health, goddamn, I know how to advocate my way through the system, but I have trouble some days. So how the hell chances that woman have? Like, it's hard. Sorry, I'm going off a different tangents here. No, it's not a tangent at all. That was excellent. And exactly what I want to start talking about, which is access in general. So you spoke a little bit about access. I don't know, Claudette, do you want to add in um, some barriers to access that you've seen or you faced yourself that are specific to your community? Uh, I can give you an example. My accident when I was going home for a, a funeral that, about eight years ago. And wintertime, yeah, that's why I'm still traumatized from the winter. I was doing 80 and I hit the mountain. I was coming up in Kamloops, corrected myself from going over the ledge and then straight. And then the right tire caught the, the side of the road. And then that pulled me into the ditch and then four times in that mountain. What I'm getting at is that I had to wait. It was like seven o'clock in the morning. I did not get treated properly at all. Like the person, the passenger got taken to an area to get x-rayed and all that kind of stuff. I said, got given the good dope. And then I had to go south and check myself in at the emergency. So here I am, I go in and present myself. And then as soon as the clerk got my file and everything, it was like, ew, she grabbed it like this and put it through like, cause it had HIV on it. And then I had to go and follow the line and go wait in the area to be seen. And I, I did not get any kind of care at all properly, like evaluated anything. I was on the phone, like being so like dutiful, calling my board of directors saying, oh, I think I'm going to need some time out. I was just in an accident, that, 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 being all calling people. And then I see the ambulance come in and I go, oh, where's my, where's my vehicle? This is my first accident. I had no clue that you had to call a claim, do anything. So this my car settled on the highway from 7 o'clock to 4.30. I was released at the hospital. By the time I got that information, I'm trying to do a claim, wait and wait and wait to be seen by the doctor. Gets me on the thingy when my time comes. Pushed me around like this, like barely touched my stomach. Like just uh, nothing, right? Nothing. And that was it. Gave me a little container of about maybe three, four pills and then a prescription of Tylenol and then that was it. That was my care. So that means that that's how we get treated as individuals. It's like, okay, I'm not drug seeking. I'm like in a car accident. I stayed in my hotel room for three days. Didn't eat, didn't do nothing. Just ate enough to get my pills in me. And just, I had a big bruise on my head from like bouncing up and down like a rag doll, right? So yeah, it was it was not good care, and that's how it is. For me, I barely go to the doctor as as I do. I'll I'll, I'll try to do my own kind of yeah, get rid of it, do some medicines, that kind of thing. And then if it's really bad, yeah, okay. I don't take a lot of antibiotics. I don't get seen by a lot of things. I don't do consume a lot of any more toxic toxic things that are already going in my body. So I take statin. My thyroid pill and my HIV meds and that's it. 
my my natural products. So really a barrier to kind of basic care because you are living with HIV. Is there, would you say that people, Claudette, in your community or where you live, if they are living with HIV, um, are they able to easily get uh, antiretroviral therapy? Are they able to get it easily? Here in BC, yes, that's the one given thing about BC that saved my life and being from Alberta was that the, the, the antiretroviral therapy is given uh, to free to anybody that's positive in the province of BC. I'm an and it's not covered. It's not covered because I'm working. If I was on disability, then yeah, they'll cover it. But because I choose to work and not be disabled uh, and, and claim assistance, um, then I, I have to access catastrophic drug, drug coverage to the Ontario Children's Foundation which has deductibles based on your income. So the more money you make, the more you pay. So I have to fork out about $12,000 a year out of pocket to pay for my medication to keep myself alive. And uh, there are some ASOs like ACDR that have wellness funds that assist with some medical costs. They can't assist for $12,000 for every patient, not every client. That's ridiculous. And so you have to figure out how to make it work. I just want to say that I agree with you because one time, the one time I'm traveling to all my meetings that I've done in 20 something years and I forgot my HIV meds and I was in Toronto and it was a Friday night and I go to look in my container and I go, I don't have my container. My container was still on the table at home here. So my roommate does no, no techie techie. I'm like screaming out of 12 o'clock Toronto time. I need you to take pictures of my medication to verify because I went to the village, a pharmacy in the village in Toronto. And because I knew my medication, they got the photos. Then they confirmed with the doctor. I missed, I, if I didn't have coverage, my status card, which was my, my coverage, I would have had to pay $400 for four days of med out of pocket. And I'm like, Oh, so I know what that means about like, you think about that scenario that he gave earlier about the mother and three kids and like, that's the reason why, and a lot of reasons why there's not that many women at the table for that reason, because they were taking care of other business. I think it's, you know, we're telling a story here that I think is important for people to hear for a lot of reasons. But one of the reasons I think is that, like I said before, if you're not as familiar with these issues, you might think, wow, we've made amazing medical advances in HIV research, right? Like, we're good, you know? And I don't think everyone is aware of all of the many, many layers of challenges to access and their stigma that people are facing all the time. And that's why this awareness is um, still super important. Um, I want to talk before we close, because we're almost at the end of time already, but no. I know, I, well, is, this is going to be a big question. So d don't feel, don't feel rushed or anything. Okay. I'm going to give you a long lane way here. Um, <laughs> one of the reasons why I like a podcast as, as an information source for me personally, as someone who enjoys listening to podcasts, I think it's, people are very likely I find to pass that information on to a friend, to a peer, you're at a party, you're at work, you know, you're recommending a podcast to someone um, because you learn something really cool and you want someone to, to listen in. And so that's what I want this to be, this episode to be. And so, Adrian, you said earlier, I, I just want to pick up on HIV 101. So I don't, I don't know if we need to go into like the whole HIV 101, but um, what 
could we tell listeners now that would really change their mind or 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 would have a positive impact and would maybe want them to pass this episode on to someone? Maybe let's start with like what are the what's the impact on HIV transmission now because of U equals U? I don't know if you have that those numbers handy. I mean there's a lot to unpack, but I'll start with the last part of that question, which is the impact of U equals U on transmission rates. Well, the answer is there's little to middle. Uh, impact in that the people with HIV are not the ones who are on treatment, who are not the ones who are spreading the disease. It's the people who don't know their status. So it's people who are not tested. And those people who aren't tested is who we need to reach the most. Because once those people are tested and discover their status, then they can go on treatment, they can become undetectable. And then, then you will see will have an impact on transmission rates in Canada. But there are many, many people walking around in Canada People have no clue they're actually positive because of the, how long the virus can be in your body without actually manifesting symptoms, right? And and um, and when you first are infected with HIV, you become incredibly virulent. There's a reaction from your uh, immune system, and the virus spikes, and you you become the most infectious you can be. After several months, that that, that viral load stabilizes, right? It uh, becomes less likely for you to, to transmit the virus. But um, in the early days of infection, you are highly virulent. And so that's where we need to have the focused interventions. And that's why we need to talk to people, particularly people out there who think HIV is over, that it's got a cure and it's taken care of. With yes, there are great medications. Yes, we're living longer, healthier lives. But it continues to spread in Canada. It still impacts young gay men at alarming rates. It's affecting older women. In Ontario, uh, at alarming rates, 50% of all new infections of women last year were black women. Like, so there, there's disparities in, in, in gender and communities that we're seeing. Um, uh, rates of indigenous people across the prairies and in the north through the, through the roof. Um, so, uh, you know, it, it really, much like COVID did, it sort of shines a light on where systems are failing people. And so testing really is key and, and, and getting to the people who don't only get tested, that is where we need to go because those are the people who are unknowingly spreading the virus. I think the other piece around, around informing people about what to know about HIV is that it still can affect anyone and more and more and more. It is not a gay disease. It doesn't affect just gay people. Right? It's just still something we hear all the time with my outreach staff, or it's not an African issue or an indigenous issue. It's a human issue. HIV is human immunodeficiency virus, not homo, human. Um, and so everyone, anyone's at risk. You know, if you are newly single at the day world, protect yourself. Look at PrEP, uh, pre-exposure prophylaxis as an option if you're going to be uh, engaged in, in potentially high-risk behavior. Insist on condom usage. And randomly again, oh my God. Um, but you did ask a big question. It is um, a big question. It, 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 and you're not rambling. It's excellent. And I think, you know, what you're saying is going to make people want to learn more. And so we can link some resources in our show notes as well. Claudette, if you want to add on, um, if you were speaking to someone who is not as familiar with HIV um, issues, um, what would you say to them? What would you say to them to learn more? How about that? I say, you know what, don't be scared to ask questions. And uh, every question is 
if I don't know something, I will find my darndest. Google knows everything. So I'll go Google. I'll go to my peers in my community. I'll ask, oh, have you had this side effect or this this kind of thing, reaction, that kind of thing? And that's how that, that word and that community level, how the word spreads with one another. I talked to this person. This person says, oh, I've had this happen with me. That, that, that. Well, have you tried this? You know, there's there's that camaraderie and sharing of information so that it's not so scary for that new individual. So I can relate for the first time, you know, as being that person new to the, the diagnosis and everything, we all can go back and be that person and go, well, it's not that scary with the advice of the doctor that's the specialist that, you know, got the, the education behind them. It comes down to the individual when they're ready and informed with all the information that they need to make that decision to go on treatment, I think is the most effective way I could say and to add to my lovely counterpart Adrian's response. That's excellent. And thank you for, for having that openness to have these conversations with us. Um, I wanna close with one question. We'll start with you, Adrian. What is it that motivates you? What is meaningful, the most meaningful in your work right now? Probably it was um, why do we stick around in HIV work 35 years later? Um, well, but, um, there's some, there's a real privilege um, in, in being there to see someone's journey from a place of despair and hopelessness to a place of empowerment and, and strength. And it's been my good fortune uh, to meet many people, women, who after divorce or widow or become widowed have gone into dating life and, and been infected or women who've been infected by philandering husbands or uh, young people been infected at the age of you know, 18, 17. Um, they come in and they look at the world and they're full of such shame. And there's something about HIV that's unique right? in that it, it, it blames the person who has the disease for, what they, for why they have it. There's an assumption. Um, about each of us, whether you are um, white, black, male, female, doesn't matter. You did something to deserve this. You chose a lifestyle or had a behavior um, that made you deserving of this disease. And so there's a great sense of shame that comes can come with the diagnosis of HIV. And then there's still that 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 belief, which is wrong these days, that oh my God, my life, my days are not. I'm going to die. And so that initial feelings of shame, of, of wanting to keep it very, very secret, um, and of, of fearing, you know, that you'll be alone for your life and that you'll never be with anybody ever again and, and you will die young or younger than you imagine. That's all not true when people go through the journey of discovering themselves um, and learning to adapt to the living with the virus and finding their voice and their agency and learning about what disclosure means and how they control their destiny and, and who knows what about them and giving people the agency to then speak their truths. Um, it's a remarkable and wonderful thing to be a part of. And I have been moved to tears many, many times by watching people who step into their own, into their own lives. It's such incredible strength and meaning um, and, and passion to say, this is who I am. This is, you know, my disease does not define me. 
um, and I am worthy of all these things. I'm worthy of love and respect and compassion. And and that journey is a remarkable one. If I can help anyone in the journey, then forgive me, but I'm living a life of grace for service, right? And and that to me is where the value comes. And that's what motivates me. I work with young people across the province, young people born with HIV and those newly infected, and we match them together. So you see a long-term survivor person, like 21-year-old, who's been living with HIV since the day they were born, teaching a person who was infected two months ago about how to manage their lives. Being part of that journey, it's a real privilege. I am blessed. Claudette, for you, doing your advocacy work, what is the most meaningful to you? I think it goes back to um, my my late Cookham and honoring, you know, her her struggle and doing the ceremony and being reborn in ceremony and connecting with my culture. I think that's the grounding piece that I have that I bring to the table when I'm involving more community. Uh, Adrian had the he was at Car and attended the stats talk back and that's what I'm currently in and funded for from the feast I've got a, a grant and I just finally paid my first video and their canvases were done and like so I'm on that end of being the person that's out there trying to find the money to engage more positive people because you know when we're together that's when all great things come together people take care of one another, somebody's sad, sorrow, whatever. Um, just how, how I deal with people when I'm engaged in conferences. Somebody's having a time, it's like you go take care of that person, get them settled, get them something to eat. Like just recently, somebody was tr trying to come in from the East Coast to the Zoom meeting. Just a minute, he goes, I'll be there. Because I go, don't worry, take your time, no worries. Grab something to drink. And he goes, oh, how did you know when he gets on the line? He goes, how did you know that I needed to have a drink of water? I'm like, well, because you're just running from this event. And, and we all know how that is, how we're, our time is like, you go from one event to the other. So just take that time to be considerate and think, don't, don't rush. You know, that's how I mean about the movement. And he spoke about Adrian, the Jeepa Nipa principles. And that's how we operate within community that we engage with one another we see that somebody's down we're like have that conversation to cheer them up a little bit you know that's how that reciprocal teaching and learning happens with one another and and how i incorporate that and in bringing more people that want to be involved in research it's not so bad if this creek can get wind of it and go apply for money under you know the, all the other big calls that come out you know little me going 25,000 here, 5,000 here, you know, every little bit adds up, but then I'm bringing more community and different voices to the table that haven't been at the table before. So that's, that's my plug about being how, how within community, we bring community together at all different angles of wherever, wherever we're, where, wherever we're from. Right. That is so cool. Claudia. That really is so cool. I mean, I mean really you're all giving, giving, making space. The people who want out of voice, bravo. It's incredible work. Well done. Thank you for that. I think, like I said before, your your expertise and your stories are appreciated very much for this conversation, but also your giant hearts, because I can tell both of you have humongous hearts, and it just totally came through. 
<laughs> in this conversation and your stories and in your passion. Um, so thank you again so much for joining me today. We'll link all kinds of resources in the notes so people can learn more because I feel like you um, have inspired some people to do that. Um, thank you again. Thanks for tuning in to Healthy Canadians. If you're watching on YouTube, don't forget to click the like button below and subscribe to stay up to date on future episodes. Find us wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review if you like what you heard. For more information on the health topics that matter to you, visit canada.ca slash 